All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is pretty easy to find. It's the second book in the Bible. So you go Genesis, Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 1, and then we'll bounce around. We'll go to chapter 6 and chapter 14 as well. Uh, While you're turning there, I just want to point out something. It feels like within the last week and a half, I've heard people say this about a dozen times. Man, I can't believe that Christmas is already around the corner. Right? I mean, it feels, like, uh, it feels like just a few weeks ago, we were planning out 2016 and creating New Year's resolutions and really hoping that 2016 wouldn't be as bad as it turned out to be, right? And, and, and we were doing all this planning, and now Christmas lights are going up all over our city, and it's that time of year already. What happened? feels like it just flew by. And that's why I'm excited this morning to kick off our new series, our new Advent series that's going to lead us all the way into Christmas. And we're calling the series A Thrill of Hope. A Thrill of Hope. And, and here's the idea behind this series, that every human heart, and I don't think you need to be a Christian to believe me on this or to agree with me on this, every human heart has this longing or this desire for meaning, for significance, for beauty. Every human heart has this longing for identity. We even have this longing to be rescued as a group of people, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But we we have these longings as humans, and what we believe as Christians is that Jesus is the answer to every longing of every single human heart. We actually, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to think of maybe another way to see your world. Maybe those desires and those longings that you have, they're not meant to point you to something here on the earth. Maybe these eternal desires that you have are meant to point you to a transcendent reality who is Jesus. So that's what we want to do. And actually, we want to take you through various stories in the Old Testament that really hold up the need for Jesus, that really show us, paint pictures for us, the the need that people throughout all history have had for the coming of Jesus into this world and not just identify with that need, but then show what Jesus does to fulfill that need. So that's what we're doing in this series and we're really, really excited to kick it off. Really want you to bring friends, especially ones that either don't have a church home or don't know Jesus, uh, bring them to hear all about Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's what we're gonna do today. We're actually gonna be in the book of Exodus, and I'm going to try to do my best to summarize this entire story for you, this whole book, in just a a few short minutes with you. And this story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In fact, what I love about the story is it's the greatest story of rescue in the Old Testament. There's no other story of rescue that comes close to this story. It's the most profound story of rescue, and it's a real historical account of God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, bringing them across the Red Sea, and then bringing them eventually into the promised land. But what's so crazy about the story is that it's not just a historical account of what God did for a group of people thousands of years ago. That Actually, the New Testament wants us to read this story through the lens of what Jesus came to do. That we're actually told in various parts of the New Testament that this is like a, a microcosm, if you will. This is like a small picture, if you will, of what God was going to do, not just for his people in Egypt, but for every person on the planet. So that's where we're headed. And before you can really understand how beautiful this rescue was, you need to understand the need that they had 
to be rescued. So if you're with me, chapter one, really through a long series of events, God's people had found themselves as slaves in bondage under a harsh oppression of the Egyptian government, Pharaoh and the Egyptian government. And this is the story of their rescue. So chapter one, look at verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now look at verse 15 because the story gets even worse. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now fast forward and go down to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. What actually happens in the story is the the the. Hebrew midwives, they don't carry out Pharaoh's command, and they instead choose to keep all those little Hebrew boys alive. So look at what Pharaoh decides to do in verse 21. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now let's just stop right there, and I want to paint this picture for you of what life was like in Egypt during this time. Life in Egypt for the people of God was one of extreme brokenness and absolute hopelessness. This was bondage. This was slavery. This was, imagine, like, just, I, I know we've never, you know, most of us have never encountered the, the type of suffering that they experienced, but do your best to enter into the story and put your own life and your own family in this story. Like, this is a profound time of suffering for the people of God. They were in desperate need for someone to come and set them free. All they'd known for generations, for 400 years, was waking up early in the morning and going out in the fields. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. It didn't matter if you were pregnant or not. You'd go out into the fields and you'd work back-breaking labor till the sun would go down. And then you'd go home. And unlike what we get to do in our culture, we get to go home and actually chill on the couch and, and hang out and watch Hulu and watch Netflix and catch up on all those shows and really enjoy the fruit of all of our hard work. We get to enjoy our house and our food and our car and all these other things. But in this context, they didn't get to do that because they didn't own a house. They didn't own property. They were actually property that was owned by the Egyptian people. They were slaves. So they worked night and day, did difficult labor, and never got any pay raises, never got any shifts in any sort of economic status. There was nothing you could do to buy your freedom. There was nothing you could do to break the cycle. 
And then to top that off, to make matters even worse, it wasn't just a place of physical suffering where you were forced to do really difficult, painful work with your hands, but actually this was a culture where there was a lot of emotional suffering going on. I mean, think about it. This is a culture where uh, there, there was a turning point when Pharaoh got so nervous about how big the people of Israel were, were growing, how much they were multiplying and expanding, that he made the decision to basically start a genocide of all the, the, the Hebrew boys that were born. So any boy that was born was going to be killed, either tossed into, into the Nile or killed in some other fashion. And so just imagine if you are a woman who is pregnant in this time and in this place, there are no ultrasounds, there are no avenues or, or ways to know if you're having a boy or a girl. So you carry this child praying to God for nine months that this is not a boy. Because if it's a boy, it's going to be ripped from your hands and you'll never see the child again. And if it's a girl, then, then you're so grateful and you're able to kind of, okay, we're okay until the next child. I mean, this was just profound suffering. And then to top that off, so you've got physical suffering, you've got emotional heartache, and to top that off, it was just unbelievable hopelessness. I mean, this was the way life was. And for them, this was the way life had been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Your dad was a slave, His dad was a slave. His dad was a slave. His dad was a slave. I mean, this went on for longer than America has been a nation, this profound level of suffering and heartache and pain. And Pharaoh is this harsh taskmaster that is oppressing this particular people, the people of God. Now, here's where their story and our story starts to interact a little bit. Because even though we don't live in the harsh, oppressive slavery world that they lived in and this culture, if you read the rest of the Bible and if you see the way that it talks about living life as a human on planet Earth, it's going to tell us that this world that we live in is kind of like Egypt. There are profound things that are suffering and difficult and painful that we experience. And there's darkness and there's brokenness in this world. And this world is not right something has gone wrong. It's not the way that it was supposed to be. And again, I don't think you need to be a Christian to agree with me that something in this world has gone wrong. I mean, think about it. We have hospitals, and I'm grateful that we have hospitals, but wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where you didn't even need those because no tragic things ever occurred? We've got firemen. I love that we have firemen and women. But listen, wouldn't you be so pleased to find out that we actually don't need those because no fires happen that burn people's houses to the ground? I mean, I even felt this recently, my wife and I, as we walked through a painful miscarriage. It's like we celebrated the, the, the life of a child and then we're there in the doctor's office and they're doing the ultrasound and there's no heartbeat. Like, this is not Right? The world is not supposed to be like this. Babies are supposed to be okay. They're supposed to be fine. Moms are supposed to not have to mourn a child that they never even got to meet. We live in a world of suffering and heartache and pain. And listen, here's what's so crazy about what the Bible tells us. It's not just something way out there, this this brokenness. It's not just something way out there in the form of suffering. But the Bible's really honest about this thing called sin. And sin, just to give you a definition of that, is this disconnect that you and I have done where we've unhinged ourselves from creator God and basically chosen to live as if we were God, do what was right, 
right in our own eyes and just walk away from him altogether. And because of the reality of sin, life out there is broken and life deep inside of here is really, really broken. So it's not just painful things like miscarriages. It's also addictions to pornography. It's also adulterous affairs. It's also drunkenness and just an unhealthy relationship to alcohol. It's also running from one relationship to the other, to the other, to other, to find significance and meaning. I mean, there's all kinds of brokenness in our world, and some of it's out there, and some of it's right here, deep inside of our soul. But here's the point. Whether you realize it or not, you actually have a desire for someone to come and rescue you. You do. You have this longing for someone to come and fix this broken world. Will someone come and make things right again? Or will I continue to live in this addiction? Will I continue to be in this circumstance? Is this the way that life is going to be? You and I feel the weight of our need to be delivered and to be rescued. And in that way, their story is a lot like our story. Except rather than Pharaoh being the harsh taskmaster, what the Bible says is that Satan, sin, and death are actually the harsh taskmasters that are reigning and ruling over us and causing a lot of this brokenness that we experience in our world. Now, here's what I love about this story. And actually what I want you to do is go to chapter six. So flip over just a couple pages to chapter six. What happens in chapter six will give you a window into the heart of God for people that are in a broken world. Right? So what I love about this, and some of you, this is new to you because your idea of God is one of a distant deity. He's really far away. He doesn't even know what's happening. And if he does know, he obviously doesn't care because it still happens. And so for you, this, this picture of God that you have that you came in with this morning is one that's just distant or he's harsh. He's vindictive. He actually finds joy in the oppression of people. So who knows what picture of God you and I walked in with this morning, but Chapter six is going to reframe your vision of God. I just want to read this to you. Verse two, God spoke to Moses. Some of you've heard of Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Look at this, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now look at verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. 
Now, what I love about this story, we'll just pause here for just a second. What I love about the story is that they lived in this profound brokenness. They were in need of a rescue. And the whole story of the Bible is really off of this story in chapter six of Exodus. It is not the story of God's people flagging God down and saying, don't you care? Don't you see? Don't you want to step in? Why aren't you helping? And then finally, God coming down to the rescue. But actually the story of the Bible is God taking the initiative. It's him seeing the oppression. It's him seeing the bondage. It's him seeing the suffering. And the story of the Bible over and over and over again is not one where he demands that you and I build this ladder of morality and religion to get to him so that we can fix all the problems in this world. It's one of God coming down to us to fix the problem and to bring the rescue that you and I are craving. I don't know if you noticed how many times it said I in this passage. 17 times I counted. 17 times he says, I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. It's like the whole point of the story is that they're stuck in slavery. They can't do anything about it. And God is the one that's saying, hey, I see it. I know. I love you. I've got compassion on you. And I'm stepping towards the brokenness. I'm going to do something about that. This is the story of the Exodus. So how does God do it? Well, it's a crazy story. I wish I could go into all the details of this. It's, it's fascinating. If you've seen the movie, it's nothing like that, right? Uh, but still fun, so you should go see it, right? So, so what happens in the story? Well, here's what I want you to do. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version while you turn to Exodus 14. So you just flip over to Exodus 14, and we'll get there in just a minute. But here's essentially what happens. God sees the brokenness of his people, And in mercy and in grace, he responds by sending a man to rescue them named Moses. And you know the story, many of you, of Moses. Moses grew up in Egypt, and then he kind of, he killed a guy, whoops, and like ran to the the wilderness. And and then God found him in the wilderness and said, hey, you actually need to go back to Egypt, and I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses, he travels back into Egypt. He walks up to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, Pharaoh, good to see you again. Um, God, the one true God, he demands that you let his people go. That doesn't go over very well with Pharaoh because Pharaoh actually considered himself to be a God. And so he was like, who who is this God that you're talking about? No way am I gonna let God's people go. I don't even know what God that is. I'm a God, stop telling me what to do, right? Very defiant, very arrogant, very proud. Kind of like every three-year-old you've ever met in your life, right? Hey, I want you to know. Okay, well, we're going to figure that out. That's essentially what Pharaoh does to God. He points the finger and says, not going to do it. The, the rest of the story goes like this. God responds by essentially breaking Pharaoh slowly but surely of his opposition. And he sends plagues. And I'm not going to get into the details of the plagues, but just suffice it to say that they are absolutely horrible. It's like gnats, lots of gnats flying into Egypt, driving everybody crazy. Can you just imagine that? Uh, flies, lots of flies, frogs, locusts that are devouring fields, livestock die, darkness covers the world. I mean, these are just crazy, unbelievable uh, uh, judgments of God against Egypt and against Pharaoh. For Pharaoh's defiance, God is saying, if this is how it's going to be, if you're not going to do what I'm telling you to do, then I'm going to show you my power and my glory, and I'm going to do all these crazy signs and wonders to put on display how powerful I am. 
Now, this was a big deal for Egypt because remember the Egyptians, they didn't believe in the one true God, the God of the Bible. They actually had a multiplicity of gods. So there are all these different gods for different fields and different sections of Egypt. You you had the God over the flies. You had the God over uh, water. You had the God over death. You had the God over darkness. You had all these different gods over different sections. They each had their thing that they would oversee. And the Egyptians tried to make sacrifices to appease these gods so that the water would be okay, so that they would have a good successful crop, so that they wouldn't have gnats flying into Egypt like what happens. So what God is doing is he's slowly dismantling these other gods of Egypt, and he's saying, guys, I'm the one true God, right? And and I don't have like a section or a plot of land in Egypt that I oversee. The whole world is mine. I oversee all things. And when you reject me as the creator, life itself starts to unravel and fall apart. And very normal things go from order into chaos, which is what happens with the plagues. And then finally, there's a really horrible plague where God takes the life of the firstborn sons of Egypt and he spares the life of the Israelites by having them slaughter a lamb and taking this innocent lamb and spreading its blood across the doors. And if that sounds weird to you, it's just this idea that God is a holy God. And when we disconnect and we stand in defiance, blood must be shed. And so what God does is he actually takes this lamb and he, he, he passes over his people and spares them, but he goes to the Egyptians. And because they don't have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, he comes in and the firstborn son of every household dies. Now that sounds incredibly harsh. It sounds like, man, why would God do that? But just remember that God is, he's not just a God of love. He's also a God of justice that is responding to what Pharaoh did, which was, hey, all the Hebrew boys, toss him in the Nile River. This is the judgment of God on Pharaoh and on his choices and his defiance. And then what happens after that is Pharaoh, he's so broken down, he's so worn down by God that he finally lets the people of Israel go free. He says, get out, leave. And they do, they start to head out. But as soon as they head out of the city, some of you know what happens. Pharaoh changes his mind. And he says, okay, this was a bad idea. I'm gonna chase them down and I'm gonna kill them. I'm not gonna let them escape. So what happens next is the people of Israel, they, they come to this giant sea. It's called the Red Sea. And they're there. They're standing at the Red Sea. There's no way to cross. They don't have boats. They don't have any way to get across the sea. And then they look behind them, and it's the Egyptian army headed as fast as they can towards them to kill them. So again, put yourself in their shoes. They're surrounded by chaos. There's death on both sides. There's no way out of this situation. And then God shows up and he does something unbelievable. He has Moses raise his staff. Moses raises his staff and the Red Sea parts in two. There's a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. And the people of God, the people of Israel, walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as soon as the last person gets across, as the Egyptians are headed into the Red Sea in hot pursuit of the the people of God, God allows the waters, the walls to come back down and wash over the the Egyptians and, and the Egyptian armies drown and God completely saves and delivers his people. What happens after that is so crazy. He takes them to a mountain and on that mountain, he gives them the law. And I love this. It's not like, hey, if you keep the law, then you'll be my people. It's like, no, hey, I just made you my people. Now let me show you how my people live. And then what he does is says, there's this promised land and I'm gonna bring you there and and it's gonna be great. And just just trust me and we're gonna go there, right? This is the story of the Exodus. Now, I just wanna 
pause here and say this. That story, it's a real story. It really happened. It's true, actually, like historically true. But this story is your story and my story if you are a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the story of what we call the gospel, which means the good news. And that's this, that actually what I want you to see is the story of the Exodus and how God delivers his people is why Jesus entered human history. What we celebrate at Christmas, it's why Jesus came in the first place so that people who are in bondage could be delivered and could be set free. People that live in broken worlds, people that live with tragedy, people that live inside of brokenness out there and brokenness in here could experience the safety and the deliverance of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to quickly give you two things that I hope changes the way you see Christmas. What was happening at Christmas time, when Jesus was laying there in a manger as a baby, really what was happening, because that was like the most significant event in human history, what was taking place. Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. Christmas is the story of a better rescue. Christmas is the story of a better rescue. So like the people of Israel, we've said this, but we needed a rescue. And here's what God does for us. He doesn't send a guy named Moses and he doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't just send a a man to come and, and deliver us. What God does is he sends himself and he does so by becoming a baby and embracing our humanity. And what God is doing at Christmas time, catch this, he is coming to Satan, sin, and death. And he's pointing his finger at them in the eye saying, let my people go. It's time that you let them go. Jesus laying in the manger is God shouting to our oppressive enemies, Satan, sin, and death, seeing our slavery, saying, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to put on display my power. I'm going to bring you across from death into life safely. So this is what Jesus does. And listen, when Jesus shows up, Jesus doesn't come with plagues. He does come with signs and wonders, but these signs and wonders are not where he's taking things from normalcy into chaos, from order to chaos. But what Jesus does is quite the opposite. He doesn't show up with judgments. He comes with grace upon grace, and he takes things that are in chaos and brings them back into order. Listen to this. Jesus comes to people that are blind, and he says, hey, that's chaos. I'm going to make you see again. Jesus takes water and he doesn't turn it into blood. He turns it into wine. This isn't time to mourn. This is time to feast. Jesus is coming to deliver. Jesus doesn't come and bring darkness over the land. Jesus actually came to the darkness and he was the light to push it back. Jesus comes to people that have never taken a step in their life, people that are lame, and he, he gives them legs again. He comes to dead little girls, and he brings life to their body. Like, this is what Jesus does. It's not, hey, God is angry with you. It's, hey, I've seen your oppression. I've seen your slavery. I've seen the brokenness. I want to deliver you now. And he's not just sending someone else to do it. He comes himself. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus comes to set his people free. And just like the people of Israel walked across from from the Red Sea on dry ground, we get to cross over from death into life. 
In fact, this was so interesting. I heard Tim Keller, uh, he's a pastor in New York City in Manhattan. I heard Tim Keller talk about when he was younger, he was in seminary, he was sitting in the room with an older pastor and they were trying to figure out, is the Old Testament about Jesus or is it just the New, Te- New Testament? And what, what this older pastor told Tim Keller, he said, no, think about the story of the Exodus because actually every part of this story is pointing us to Jesus. And, and he said this, I found this interesting. He said, if you were to talk to an Israelite right after they crossed over the Red Sea, and if you were to ask them to tell you, hey, who are you? What's your identity? What's your story? Their story is shockingly similar to exactly how a Christian would respond. Listen to this. This is you, me, asking this person that just walked across the, the, the uh, Red Sea. We're asking them, tell us your story. Tell us your identity. Who are you? Here's the response. Well, I was in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death, but a, a lamb was slaughtered and his blood was shed so that we could live. And our mediator led us out of bondage and we crossed over and now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. And God, he's given us his law and he made us his people and he's rescued us from our bondage. That's shockingly similar to what a Christian would say. Who are you? What's your identity? Well, we were, we were in oppression and slavery and brokenness and suffering. And, and God, he sent a mediator named Jesus and he came and he rescued us. And, and now we're, we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. And we've, we, we've been given the law. We know now how to live. And it's not so that we can make him happy or earn his approval. It's because he's already made us his people. And this is, this is what God has done for us. This is who we are. Christmas is the story of a better rescue. And then secondly and finally, And you need to hang with me on this because there's a lot that I want you to see in a short amount of time. Christmas is the story of a better mediator. Christmas is the story, not just of a better rescue, but it's the story of a better mediator. Here's the question I want you to think about. Why were the Israelites able to cross over the Red Sea and yet the Egyptians were not able to cross over the Red Sea? Now, often what we do when we think about that is we say, well, it's obvious that the the Egyptians were the bad people and the Israelites were the good people. So God allowed the good people to cross over, but the bad people, he actually didn't allow to cross over. He allowed the waters to sweep them away. By the way, water in the Old Testament is, is a symbol of the judgment of God. You think about the flood, for example. So water is, it's, it's not just, you know, physical water here, but it's also a symbol of the judgment of God. So essentially what we're saying is that the Israelites didn't receive judgment, but the people of Egypt did receive judgment. Why was that? Is it because the Israelites were good and the Egyptians were bad? Well, if you ever read the story fully and you read actually any part of your Bible, you're going to soon find out that the Israelites were not the good people. They were far from the good people. They were profoundly broken and sinful people, actually. In fact, they are as bad, if not worse, than the Egyptians. If you read the Exodus, you will get annoyed with them and you will want to destroy them, right? they, They are complaining and whining all the time. They're so frustrated. They've seen God do a thousand amazing things. And yet, like every second of every day, they doubt his goodness and faithfulness most unbelievably hard-hearted people that you've ever read about, right? And, and so here's what's happening. It's not that good people get grace and good people get life and bad people, they get judgment and they don't get life. No, the story only has one category of people. There's just bad people. 
The Israelites worshiped the Egyptian gods, it says in Joshua 24.10. They were worshipers of the same gods that the Egyptians worshiped. So why were they allowed to cross over? Here's how. They not only had the love of God set on them, but God had sent them a mediator named Moses. And this is really interesting. I want you to look at it with me in verse 10. So chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now look look at what happens. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us and bringing us out of Egypt? Well, that sounds different, right? Now they're like sad about it. Verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. By the way, they never said that. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Look at what happens in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Okay, so here's what's happening. You got the people of Israel, they're complaining, they're whining, they're throwing a fit, and they're doing all of this to God and to Moses. Moses, what is he doing? Guys, trust God, it's gonna be okay. He's gonna deliver us, just just trust God. And yet look at verse 15, watch what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. So here's what God does. God shows up to Moses, the one that actually was having faith, the one that was actually not complaining. And God in the story rebukes Moses for the sin of the people. So Moses is this mediator that is so closely identified with the people, the people of Israel, that God is able to come to Moses and rebuke Moses for their sin, even though it wasn't sin that he committed. And then look at this. Go to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all the night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So here's what you have. You have Moses in this part of the story later on. He's so closely identified with God that he's the saving power, like the, the saving power of God is flowing through Moses on behalf of the people. So in Moses, you have this mediator that on one level is so closely identified with the people that he's rebuked for their sin, even though it wasn't sin that he committed. And on the other side, you've got a mediator that is so closely identified with God that the saving power of God flows through him. Does that remind you of anybody we read about in the New Testament? Listen, Jesus is the better mediator. He comes and Christmas is the celebration that Jesus isn't just identifying with us emotionally. Jesus becomes human. He fully identifies with us. And Jesus, he he isn't just rebuked for one sin and one verse for one group of people. On the cross, if you don't hear anything else I'll say, hear this. On the cross, Jesus takes all your sin and your shame and your complaining and your brokenness and all the things that you've done, things that he never did. And God the Father crushes Jesus instead of us. That was the plan from day one. Jesus is the better mediator who is rebuked for things that he never did. 
and the waters of God's judgment wash over Jesus so that you and I could be delivered and set free and walk across on dry land. And Jesus, he's not just closely identified with God. He is God. And he comes to bring life and help and deliverance to those who are in need. And the saving power of his mercy and his love and his forgiveness flows through Jesus to you and I because of his life, death, and resurrection. Christmas is the story of a better mediator. And John chapter 5, 24, this is one of Jesus's best friends that was with Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, captured these words from Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, the story of the Bible is not a story of good people versus bad people, of people that clean up their life versus people that don't. It's a story of bad people, broken people, people with sin done against them and sin that they have done who are in desperate need of grace And this is the story of the only good one, Jesus coming to bring deliverance and rescue to us. We get to cross from death to life. Last thing I want you to see, and we'll be done. How was it that the people of Israel were able to cross over the Red Sea? We know they had a mediator. We know that God was was pouring out his power through Moses to cause the sea to go to the left and to the right like it did. But how did they do it? What was the posture of their heart as they were going across the Red Sea? Well, here's what we read in verse 13. So look again with me at verse 13. They're freaked out, they're nervous, and Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Then verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In other words, Moses comes to him and he says, hey, God's gonna do this for you. He's gonna fight the battle. He's gonna bring deliverance. He doesn't need your help doing this. Just trust God. In other words, have faith in God that this is going to happen. And then we read this in Hebrews eleven twenty nine. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So they had a mediator, but they also had faith in God that this was gonna be something that God did. Now, I just wanna point this out and we're gonna wrap it up and be done. That some of you, you struggle with faith and you think that faith is this beautiful, robust thing that you bring to God. And you're, you're maybe even here as a skeptic or as, a, as someone that's struggling and you wanna believe, but you don't know if you do. And you're trying to believe and you want it to be true, but you're just nervous that you're not gonna have enough faith to be considered a Christian. But listen, some people in the story, their faith was massive and huge, and it was, it was great. Some people, some of the Israelites were walking through the Red Sea, and they were looking at the wall of water on the left and on the right, and they were like, this is so cool that God is doing this. This is awesome. And they're seeing the Egyptians, and they're like, yeah, right? Take that. I mean, they, they had a lot of faith, and they felt great about it. But there are other people, you know that there had to have been other people that were walking through, and they are freaked out. Like, will the walls of water stay that way? Or are they going to fall over us? Like, I, I, I want to believe I'm just going to, okay, I'm walking carefully. I'm walking carefully. And they were freaked out, but they made it across safely. Here's my point. It doesn't matter the caliber 
or the size or the quality of your faith. That's never been the thing that matters. What matters is the object of your faith. What matters is where you place that faith. So don't look to your faith as the thing that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you, right? He's the one. So don't worry. Is it big? Is it small? Some of you are like, you go every day. God loves me. He doesn't love me. He loves me. He doesn't love me based on how you act. Listen, it doesn't matter. Like if you just come to him as you are and you're saying, I want to believe that you could love someone like me. I want to believe that the waters of your judgment won't wash over me. I want to believe that Jesus is the the better mediator. I want to believe that he came to rescue. That is enough. That's what makes us Christians. So here's what I want to do as we wrap up. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not good people versus bad people. This is not turn over a new leaf and try to fix all the problems in your life. The story of Christianity, the story of Christmas, the story of of the whole Bible is that God looked down and he saw what was going on and he felt love and compassion and mercy. And rather than just leaving us here to die, Jesus came to die for us. And he took our sin and our shame and the justice of God crushed him so that we could experience the mercy and the love and the grace of God. Today, the invitation to every one of you in this room is to come to Jesus and he will lead you out of darkness into light. He will lead you out of death into life. He will bring you into his mercy and his forgiveness and his love.